Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Most shameful thing you've ever done in a tournament. Uh, pooped in a duck blind with a camera guy watching me. It doesn't matter what my favorite fly is for most of these people, unless they're fishing right alongside me. Look, kids, the catfish is eating those ducks. Soak it in. Soak in the terror. You are on the verge of killing people. We have to, like, send you to Montana to go fly fishing. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent. The podcast that believes Congress would get a whole lot more done if representatives from different parties were forced to fish together at least one day a month. Preferably, I say, on a headboat out of Brooklyn, Miami, or Galveston, Texas. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and I am 100% convinced of that statement. Miles approves this statement. 100%. (laughs) No, man, I've taken, I have taken hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know. I lost count. I've, I've taken lots of people, strangers fishing yeah in the yeah. course of my life you get and i didn't it. yeah i didn't always agree with them uh i, I, nope. I didn't always get along with them frankly nope. i didn't always like them but <laughs> no matter what was going on no matter what kinds of things they said or we disagreed upon we were always able to find common ground in the sense that we all had the same goal of catching fish and we could put some of the other things aside and at least agree on that 100 percent, 100 percent. and the theme for this week's show on that note is bringing people together and to be fair that's kind of uh, the theme of the show all the time. Yeah. I think we, I hope we established that by now, but we're going to lean into that extra hard today because um, after recently being told I was essentially a dirt bag for using trout magnets on a fly rod, I think we could all use a little more focus on what connects us. Did that actually us. Have, Did someone actually yes. do that? In so many words via DM, I was called a piece of shit for using uh, or promoting the use of <laughs> trout magnets on a fly rod. So, I, I hope whoever sent that message is listening right now because I'm going to say this. Send me some. Oh, wait. I mean, I, there's a box. It's packaged. It's got the packing tape on it. 
We've talked on this show about our reluctance to go to the post office. <laughs> I just need to get my ass to the post office. We're going to make your trout fishing dirty in 2021. Send it. Send it. Just, just <laughs> as long as I have them, you know, ahead of the spring fishing bonanza on the Madison. Because oh, I want to be will. seen on the Madison River <laughs> tying trout magnets onto my the end of my fly rod and casting them out there proudly. I'll see if um, I can get you a trout magnet hat too, so you can just go the whole route. Or like I'll a do it. trout magnet jersey. Okay. I'll do it. And 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 I don't mean that in the sense of trying to like divide people further. I mean that in the sense of like, let's all get over ourselves and come together on on yes. how we're united. And I think I think I speak for Joe and myself when I say that we still believe fishing is one of the few places where people who disagree on just about everything else Amen. can find common ground. Preach. You know, I mm-hmm. I hate just about everything Lance V stands for. Hate that clown. But I'd still fish with the guy. And you know what? I'm pretty sure I'd have a good time doing it. Oh, I'd, I'd have a tremendous time. If only because I'd spend <laughs> the entire day just backhandedly making fun of him. <laughs> uh, but look, on that note, right, let's kick the tires and light the fires on a show. We're striving to make extra diverse in terms of guests, information, and our special brand of self-deprecation. And we're going to start with our covering water segment featuring someone I've actually shared a boat with, had a great time with, though not because of the fishing, because I never wet a line that day. But it was magical because I had a front row seat to competitive bass angling like no other. Taking his licks on bent today, I'm happy I get to say this, the one and only Mike Iconelli. I'm going in. Cover me, Porkins. I can hold it. Pull up! No, I'm all right. Today on Covering Water, uh, we've got a um, guy I'd call sort of an up-and-comer in the fishing scene. My notes say his name is Mike Iconelli. Mike, tell us who you are and what you do. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm oh, totally kidding. I had I'm an totally answer. kidding. I had an answer for you. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. You if you do, don't know Mike? who Mike Iconelli is, you're, on, you're listening to the very wrong podcast. Um, but, dude, we are so pumped and thankful to have you on the show, man. And... Um, Considering we're both Jersey guys, it's it's taken way too long for us to collab, as the kids say, um, on something. In fact, the the only time you and I have ever hung out is when I rode with you on day one of the Elite Tourney on the Delaware yeah. many years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I was I was always a little bummed because I feel like I was there for the tough day, and then in the following days you just utterly dominated. Yeah, but. Um, I heard you were People, the bad luck charm, Joe. That's what I heard. I, I, That's not true. I've been, I've been known to be. But th- that day comes up often. People are always like, tell me about that day. And I'm like, oh, well, it's the only time in my life I was ever on a boat that for a brief time was straight vertical. So that that was that, that was yeah. my takeaway from, from that. I uh, just saw the trolling motor under the belly of a 747 yeah. coming into Philly Airport. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, man, that was. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got to do that, and uh, that was that was a while ago now. Me too. I'm actually glad you were there for the first day. You know, tur- <laughs> tournaments like that are one on the tough day, on the day where you're struggling and trying to figure it out. They're yeah. the they're the days you win. You know, the other days yeah. were gravy. You know, so I mean, you know, I I think catching five that day, putting that weight in the boat. You know, I had a I had a missed opportunity that day. I remember I broke one off. Um, you know, that's the day that defined the week for me, not the days, oh. you know, where I caught them easier, you know? So I'm, yeah. gl- I'm glad you were with me that day. No, dude, I got it. It was a great hug I got when you caught five. I remember that. Also, <laughs> I also lost, I also lost one of my favorite hats that day, but I, I, I thought it inappropriate because you were working and stuff to be like, hey, Mike, could you spin around and grab my hat? <laughs> so 
technically you kind of owe me a hat. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> I've, I've got one going your way. And I've donated many to the river gods of the Delaware River over the years I, myself. I, I, so have I. I'm, 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 I'm kind of kidding because I don't think I, since I've been in the industry, I've ever paid for a hat. They're all free hats anyway. Yeah, so That's right. You know. That's so, right. All right. So we will move on here. And here, here's what we do uh, in, in covering water. Instead of conducting a well thought out sort of proper interview, I put two minutes on the clock. And Miles and I rapid-fire questions at you. Okay. And the goal here is to get through as many as we can in two minutes, which means you can't think too long. You just you just have to react in this one. It's kind of yeah. like a like a verbal Rorschach test. And as a prior guest on um, on Covering Water once said, "Oh, so it's two minutes to end my career," which you know, <laughs> depending on no, how you it, answer, listen, that's how it might go. <laughs> but in, this, in the in, in the spirit of fairness, right? Um, we will give you one minute to expand and elaborate on whichever answer you think was the most damaging at the end of the two minutes. Oh, I like that. Okay. Does that all sound good? That sounds great. Okay. All right. So I'm going to put two minutes on the clock here. And here we go. Miles, are you ready? I'm ready. You're leading, right? I am leading. All right. Here we go. go. Snakeheads. Yes, please. Or no, thanks. Yes, please. Absolutely. Snakeheads do not get the credit they deserve. They're not bad for the population of largemouth and smallmouth bass. I love snakeheads. My man. Most revolutionary lure ever invented. Uh, you know, in my business in bass fishing, I'm going to have to say the plastic worm. Uh, mm. It, it kind of all started from that bait to where it is now. The madness has begun with the plastic worm. Cool, cool. Okay, which major U.S. metropolis has the best fishing? Boy, you know, there's a lot, but I'm right here next to Philly, so I got to go Philly. I'm going Philadelphia. I'm going Schuylkill River. Yeah. Nice. Which is worse, zebra mussels or Eurasian milfoil? Oh, I, they're both. I'm going to get in trouble for this. I love them both. I love exotics. <laughs> I love, uh, you know, in some states they try to make you clean your boat. I never do that. I love it. I'll transport mussels and milfoil all over the country. Uh, man, they're, neither of them are bad. They're both really great. Oh, man. Love that. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, that's the one that ruined my career. So I'll go back and talk about that for two okay, minutes okay. again. All right, all right, all right. All right. Corn, Slipknot, or Rammstein? Oh, uh, man. I'm going to have to go Slipknot. Uh, I nice. love corn uh, as well, but I'm going to have to go Slipknot all the way. Okay, follow-up. Biggie, Tupac, Eminem, or Outkast? Who? Just, I got to go Biggie, you know, Biggie and Tupac, nice. there's always a battle between the two, but you got to stay on the East Coast. Who is the greatest angler of all time? Man, uh, big debate there. There's been for years. I'm still voting for Rick Klun. You know, I'm, I'm saying mm. Rick Klun from a standpoint of what he's accomplished. And my opinion, he's the first guy that really was like the thinking man of bass fishing. So I'm going Rick Klun. Okay. Most shameful thing you've ever done in a tournament. Oh boy! Well, that's that's one I don't have. I, I'll eat up all the two minutes. Uh, Got to be. We're quick. almost out of the two minutes. I'm letting it go because we're having a little fun here. Okay, so. uh, pooped in a duck blind <laughs> with a camera guy watching me. Yes. <laughs> what is? <laughs> I can't even keep going. What is the most underutilized bass lure of all time? Uh, most underutilized bass lure, uh, jigging spoon. Okay. How many turns in a clinch knot? Mine, I would say six to eight, depending on the line size, but six to eight. Okay. The best cheesesteak in Philadelphia is made by? Oh, man, you know, it's funny because Gino's and Pat's gets all the attention, but I'm going Tony mm -hmm. Luke's. 
Yeah, love that. Biggest mistake the average bass angler makes. Biggest mistake would be not throwing deep enough into the cover, not making the cast that is the impossible cast to make. Okay, if you're not chasing bass, you'd prefer to be chasing. Ooh, anything swimming in salt water. <laughs> ah, fair. Salty. So, I like lady it. fish then. Anything. Uh, <laughs> Fathead minnows. La- last Bunker. one, Miles. Last one. Okay. <laughs> Gas station burrito or coffee shop panini? I'm going. Uh, I'm going bow- bottom of the barrel. Gas station uh, food all the way. Uh, the all right. Junky, greasy, dirty. Give me the gas station food. Love Dude, it. that was all. I, I'm so glad you went Tony Luke's because I was like, man, if he says Geno's, his social media numbers are just going to plummet over <laughs> yeah. that answer. No, I, I don't. I don't want to just say what everybody else says. I'm going to go a little different on that one. I struggle though with the roast pork Italian or the cheesesteak at Tony yeah, Luke's. Though I, I'd agree with that. You know, <laughs> roast pork is just as good as the cheesesteak, especially at Tony Luke's. The broccoli rob. Come on, man. There's so many choices. Yep. Yep. All right, man. So you've got uh, w- one minute, give or take, we'll say, to elaborate on any one of those answers. Okay. I, I do want to elaborate uh, probably on the Eurasian milfoil, zebra mussels, and snakeheads probably all fall maybe into the same category. You know, they're exotics, mm-hmm. they're invasives, and, you know, but there are good things that come out of those things. And, and so, you know, from a snakehead perspective, what a great game fish. You know, they thought it yeah. was the devil. They thought it was the end of the world. Here, all these years later... It's an amazing game fish. It's a great fighter. Um, and, you know, sort of the same thing with the other two. You know, Eurasian milfoil, although for homeowners and maybe water skiers and, and, and that segment, is the single best form of cover, vegetation cover for largemouth bass. Uh, it, it makes the life, the life of the system increase twofold. Upper Chesapeake Bay is a great example uh, we had a hurricane come through in the 80s. It wiped out all the grass. It wiped out all the fish. Mm. Eurasian milfoil, all these years later, came back in full force. It's 20 square miles of Eurasian milfoil. And why do you think it's the best bass fishery in the Northeast right now? So yeah. uh, zebra mussels, I'd have to give it the same nod. You know, came over in ballast water. But wow, has it really shaped and changed the smallmouth bass fishery. Uh, and, and some of the Great Lakes and river systems it's gotten into. It's made the water cleaner. Um, it's, it's just, it, it, it has diversified the fishery. There were never 20 to 30 pound bags of smallmouths available, hardly anywhere in the United States. And since the zebra mussels, it's commonplace. So long live the exotics. Oh my goodness. Man. I wish I wish we had a whole show to talk about. We're gonna have I, to we're I gonna have too. to come back to this. I do too. Because yeah, I know, man, because I, I am a snakehead fanatic. Like oh, I am yeah. a snakehead fanatic. So yeah. to hear you say that, chase them all the time around here. Yeah. Um so that's that's cool. But anyway, look, hopefully we didn't ask you anything too insulting and you'll agree agree to come back on Bent again in the future. Um, in the meantime, if you don't already follow Mike, you need to, because the amount of valuable fishing information that, that this guy produces weekly is staggering on YouTube. You've got going Ike, Ike in the shop, fish, my city. It's all rock star. And we appreciate you hanging out with us so much, man. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. As awesome as that was, I'm a hundred percent positive. <laughs> we're going to hear about the invasive species love that, that Mike just confessed. Yeah. I just have a hunch. I have a hunch. <sighs> God, that that was interesting. I, totally. This is one of those moments where I, I wish we had a longer format interview show. I mean, I don't yeah. usually feel that way, but right now I do so that we could we could dig into 
topics like that one when they come up, but you know, that would just make us like every other fishing podcast out there. And that's not what we're trying to do, but I think we need to chop this up at least a little bit. We can't just drop that and walk away. Snakeheads okay. I get, yep. right? They're, they're, they're not destroying native fisheries in the ways everyone expected. They found their own little niches in the ecosystems. And as you and Mike and everyone else tells me, they're great sport fish. So I get yep. that. But milfoil, yep. zebra mm. mussels, like, mm. do you know how much <laughs> money and effort the state of Montana puts out every year to try and keep zebra mussels out of the waterways? I don't have that figure at hand, but it's a lot. I was going to say, I'll take your word for it. I don't, I don't know, but I believe you. Yeah, I don't either, but I know it's a lot. I know that they added a new like invasive species stamp to our, our, our fishing licenses a couple years ago just to pay for it because mm. it was costing mm. so much. I mean, saying zebra mussels are beneficial, that borders on like conservation treason, man. Like, yeah, if it were uh, anyone else, I'll say this, if it were, in my opinion, if it were anyone else making that claim, I'd probably call bullshit. But Mike, I respect, and yeah. and I feel like I feel like I need to do more research on this and, and follow up with a fish news segment on milfoil and mussels. And depending on what I find, I don't know. Maybe we can bring it back for a quick debate or something. I'm I'm like my gears are turning on this one. No, I'd be totally down for that, and and, and I get it. And it's a great debate because we we've, we've talked on this show about how many anglers feel zebra mussels essentially save the Great Lakes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's two sides yeah. to every story. Anyway, starting up a debate segment bent style could be very interesting and a fun addition to the show, but I, I feel like we might be starting to go overboard with new new segment ideas. <laughs> the, we might. The show is only uh, so long, you know, we just, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. The thing is, like, we are not short on ideas. Every time we're talking, like, oh, what do we, we got to do this other thing. Just because we have the ideas doesn't make them good ideas, but we got ideas. No, they're not all good ideas. Some of them are terrible. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the earlier days here, like the time you tried to convince me we should do a segment where we surprise anglers on the water by just throwing a mic in their face and going, hey, man, what you catching? <laughs> Get punched. Like, that was not a good idea. Yeah, like that's, you can't do that shit. Not where I live. Anyway, just tap some dude on the shoulder with a mic in his face. Hey, man. Don't work. Yeah. <laughs> you get beat uh, okay. down for that. All right, all right. But if we're on the subject of bad ideas, how about the that one you want to do where like we combed social media looking for for comments that were complaining about spot burns? Like, uh, hey man, this, you're blowing uh, up my spot, and then we would blow those spot burns up as like some kind of weird <laughs> public service announcement to let people know what waters were officially I'll burned. That. I'll defend that through and through. That was a work in progress, and it was a fantastic idea. We were gonna call it burned as. F- but then we thought we thought better of it. Um, anyway, look, the point is that sometimes we find ourselves having a conversation with somebody much smarter than ourselves, and they give us a little nugget of wisdom that doesn't necessarily fit into the format of this show. So, I mean, essentially, we, we don't know what to do with it, right? So instead yeah. of trying to invent a new segment to fit the content, we just decided that sometimes we're going to give you these random stories or tips that come up when we're uh, interviewing people for our regular segments. Which I think is a good compromise. It totally. wasn't that long ago we talked to Tom Rosenbauer, one of the most respected and knowledgeable fly fishing anglers out there. And uh, and Tom, in case you don't know, hosts the Orvis podcast, and he receives approximately 14,527 stupid questions a year by my math. And the three of us got to talking about how most anglers, like, they just ask the wrong questions. Yeah, questions like, uh, what are the fish biting on? Or where are the big fish might seem like good things to ask anglers who know more than you, but they're not. They're actually no. dumb questions, right? The answers to those questions are true for a few hours, maybe, maybe. a day or two, right? A week yeah. at most. 
So if you really want to learn long-term useful knowledge from smart people, you need to work on your question-asking skills, and that's exactly what Tom is going to explain. Is a fish taco shaped like a fish? Ooh, that's a bingo. And today we are, uh, we are very fortunate indeed. Mr. Tom Rosenbauer of Orvis has agreed to talk to us. I'm, I'm not totally sure why he agreed to talk to us, but we are extremely <laughs> grateful. And, uh, and before I actually let Tom talk, which I will do in a minute, I have to say that Tom and I used to often run into each other at the fishing shows. And uh, I always enjoyed the time I got to spend with him, partially because he's just a good dude to talk to, but mostly because he is the only person I know who makes his own chocolate. Let me tell you, Tom, you make some damn, damn fine chocolate. And uh, if you ever get sick of being a fly fishing celebrity, I see a future for you as a, a successful chocolatier. I, too, have had the chocolate, and it's legendary. <laughs> there's, no, there's no future in it, believe me. I mean, you think, you think writing fishing books doesn't make money. Oh, I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all know that, right? <laughs> Try making chocolate for a living. <laughs> but we didn't actually bring you here to talk about chocolate. We want to hear about stupid questions and smart questions. So yeah. please, if you got some examples of, of questions you wish people would stop asking, as well as some examples of questions you wish they would ask more often, let us know. Oh, I've got lots of them. I believe know, that. Because I answer podcast questions every week. I have lots of them. One of the, one of the worst is I'm going to uh, Hot Creek in California next week. What flies should I use? Mm. Looking at a guy who lives in Vermont, right? And they're serious. They want to know. They want to know. They want me to, to be their Google machine because um, that's what I do. Or I call a fly shop, and that's what I tell them. You know. So that one is that one is um, is really annoying because I can't help them. Yeah. yeah. Another one is what's your favorite fly, <laughs> or what's your favorite fish? It doesn't matter what my favorite fly is for most of these people, unless they're fishing right alongside me. Uh, and and as far as my favorite fish is concerned, you know, we all have we all have these we all have these desires, and you know. We get what we want out of fly fishing. My favorite fish might be pretty boring for for other people. So um, those those two or three are uh, probably the worst. And I feel like the favorite fly question is really just trying to get at. I don't want to have to get a bunch of flies. So yeah. can you tell me like the one that'll solve yeah. all my problems? Right. Yeah. And that's just not that's not a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so what are, what are examples, you know, one or two examples of questions that you wish people would ask more often and why? Well, you know, the, the best questions are the ones with specificity. So um, somebody says, you know, I was, on, I was on a stream, the water temperature was 55 degrees, uh, there were caddis and mayflies hatching, and uh, I was using a 5X tippet and an Alcare caddis, and I couldn't get a bite. What do you think I was doing wrong? You know, when, when they give you those specifics, um, then you can help them. Or you know, something like, um, you know, I, I just remember one that I have to answer on a, on a podcast later today where a guy was fishing um, 6X tippet with bluegill bugs, and he said his clinch knots weren't holding. And, he, you know, he tried and tried, and even the improved clinch knot uh, didn't hold. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a great one because, you know, you know exactly what he was doing wrong. He was trying to put really fine tippet to a heavy wire hook and clinch knot needs, you know, uh, you can't go around that big diameter. So, you know, the, the more specific they get, 
um, with their questions, the, the better my answer can be. Right. And I think that that's applicable, you know, obviously that's applicable with you and the, the questions you get in your podcast, but I think that's someone that folks can take anytime they, they ask anyone at a, uh, whether it's a fly shop or a bait shop or with a guide or an outfitter or just a buddy who knows more than you, make sure that you're paying attention to enough variables to be able to get your question answered effectively. Don't just say, oh, I was there and I wasn't catching fishing. What did, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many variables. There's so many variables. Another annoying one is that, you know, I hooked three fish and I lost two. What was I doing wrong? Well, you know, f- fish get unbuttoned and, and people, and, and it seems like to me, it seems like in some days more fish get unbuttoned than others. And I have no idea why, even with sharp hooks and good hook sets and everything. So I don't think anyone can answer that particular question. <laughs> no. Why did I lose all those fish? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they beat you. Maybe you suck at it. Yeah. Either way, Tom, we really, really that. appreciate <laughs> you can't. We can say that on this show, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we really do appreciate you uh, you debasing yourself enough to come and chat with us here on the show, Uh-oh. Tom. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Miles. Thanks, Joe. You know, learning to ask good questions is one of the best skills you can have because the truth is that every yep. good angler, right, takes as much knowledge as possible from other people. Like oh, the, we're, we're, we shamelessly steal. Yeah, yeah. And, and learning how to ask good questions is a lot like learning how to do anything well in fishing. Pay attention to the details. Be aware of what's going on around you, you know? Situational awareness. <laughs> as exactly. a, a captain I learned from back in the day, used to beat into our heads. Cultivate the habit of noticing everything. For the record, for whatever it's worth, I could not agree more uh, with Tom. And in the interest of increasing your awareness of all the things going around you that are at least tangentially fish-related, it's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. Okay, I'm going to start off with a, with a little housekeeping. And, uh, and this one is, is a bit of a correction for me. Uh-oh. On the Christmas episode, I talked about using old Christmas trees as fish habitat, and that that definitely got some reaction. Mm-hmm. I, I heard from yeah. some people on that one. We got some notes. And so so first, <laughs> a, a listener named Caleb, who didn't want to give his last name because he doesn't want to listen to us butcher it. That That's a quote. And also happens to be an arborist, pointed out that I mistakenly called Christmas trees pine trees. Oh, yeah. He I wrote, read this. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote... While there may be some people somewhere that use pine trees as Christmas trees, the traditional tree sold pretty much everywhere is a Douglas fir. And, uh, and if any of you out there are wondering what the issue is here, this is valid. Pine trees are not fir trees. They are both conifers, but they are not the same. And, and I will own that one. That was a rookie mistake on my part. And, and Caleb, I appreciate that correction. Thank you. Also, Justin Walters, who works for the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, wrote, I just wanted to give you a short fisheries biologist's perspective on Christmas tree brush piles here in the Midwest. A lot of our reservoirs are aging, and the quality of fish habitat is gradually declining. These reefs offer a little help. I do agree they don't last as long as hardwood, but they are easy to come by. Our angling community, along with uh, other outdoor enthusiasts, love to help our agency by providing the trees we use every year. It makes them feel a connection to the resource more than just buying a license. As far as how the fishing is on them, it's seasonal, but it can be amazing. Hopefully, hmm. some fellow listeners contact their local fisheries managers to see if they are doing a collection this year. So there you go. If you are one of those lazy asses whose tree is still <laughs> desiccating in the corner of your living room, call your local agency. See if you can turn that fire hazard into fish habitat. 
at the time of this recording, mine's still on the front lawn and it is blown over. It's all like dried out and spindly now. And it's like blown mm-hmm. over onto my neighbor's lawn five times. <laughs> so they love you. I do appreciate the first guy though, just not giving the last name as somebody whose nope. last name is never pronounced correctly. <laughs> not once, not ever. Sermil, Kermel, Kermeli, Sermel. So anyway, Nolte. okay. I'm looking at you, so, Phil. <laughs> you know what? You, you brought it up. It's time to acknowledge the fact that <laughs> Phil does not say your last my name, name every single week. Yeah. Yeah. It's Nolte. Phil. Nolte. I'm sorry we had to do that, but there. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got, I've got one uh, very quick but important shout out. I have to give to listener John Mertz, who sent me a totally badass handmade spearing decoy featuring uh, the Bent logo, which is appropriate because we've just done a bunch of spearing decoy stuff. I yeah. highlighted Ryan Ebert, another listener, his his decoys on the Instagram, and we had the uh, news story about the the deke that sold for a lot of money. So um, John sent this to me, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pike shape, and it's blue, and it's super rad. And some of you may have actually seen it on my Instagram page, but the personal touch that really resonated with me is the Misfits Fiend skull on its back. And I feel like I have this thing going where people are like, hey, uh, if you want Samela to be into your shit, slap a Misfits skull on. And they're <laughs> not wrong. They're not wrong. They're not. Like, you could give me an ironing board or a dustpan. If it's got a Misfits skull on it, I'll think it's just the most dope thing. Um, anyway, John, thanks again. And while I'm not sure if you've gotten yours yet, I, I believe I told you, so he sent some deeks out to Bozeman for you Yeah, guys. I haven't got so them yet, but there's, I'll, there's I'm, more, I've got an eye out. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There, there's more custom uh, decoys out your way, and I'm sure they are killer too. So uh, that's it. Just had to give a shout out to John. We can move on to news here. And as a reminder, uh, Miles and I don't know which news stories the uh, other gentleman is bringing to the table. This is a competition. And Phil, who will hopefully say Nolte correctly for the first time in bent history, uh, assuming you win and your last name gets read, will weigh in when we're done and uh, declare a news victor. You are leading off this week. So what do you got? Yeah, I've been on a cold streak. So, uh, so Phil, I hope you're listening, <laughs> listening carefully. To Miles Nolte. To Miles Listen Nolte. Listen to him. Bringing the heat. Uh, all right. So I'm leading off this week with something just a little different because uh, I found the story. It's not new, but I think it's really interesting, and you'll you'll see why. And it also it relates to something that you covered last week, Joe. And, okay. and a quick recap: you told a story about a pair of catfish caught in Louisiana that had a whole family of ducks in their bellies. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was Googling around and I was trying to find pictures of that story because you and I had been talking about like what kind of ducks they were. And I said, well, it can't be mm-hmm. mallard. Right. And, and you said, oh, I'll send you the photos, which you never did. And I'm, I'm over it, but I didn't actually <laughs> in the Googling, I didn't find any photos of that story, but I got sidetracked. I didn't look that far. Cause I, I got, I found this other article that, uh, that I'm now going to share. This one comes from The Independent. It's an online British news publication. And, uh, and this was actually published last March. But again, I think it's still worthy of, of, of covering. The headline reads, Fish caught eating ducks at Essex Shopping Center Lake was removed because it, quote, upset children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not surprisingly, this story got picked up in a number of different UK news outlets. Everything from the BBC to the Sun, like the, the, whole, the whole gambit. There's a mall in Essex which is a, 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 an area north of, of London. And that mall borders a lake. The mall is creatively named Lakeside Shopping Center. Really thinking outside the box there. <laughs> now, 
when I think of mall ponds, <laughs> I think of these like really tiny bodies of water. But this one is it's it's big, like it's pretty significant, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's got all kinds of fish in it, like pike, perch, roach, and invasive or planted Wells catfish. So last okay. spring, someone unidentified, someone complained to the environmental agency about a fish eating ducks in front of innocent children. The agency then sent officers to the lake who caught a 25-pound catfish, which is not a very big wells. Nope. nope. And then relocated it to another lake. Ben Norrington, one of the fisheries officers involved, told reporters, large fish have the potential to eat wildfowl, so we're pleased we could remove it. And invasive species like the wells catfish pose a serious threat to native wildlife. Norrington was also quoted as saying, it's not great for kids to see these large fish eating ducks. So we removed the catfish. Again, the catfish was not killed, but safely relocated to a different private fishing lake. And at first, I got to say, this story just didn't make any sense to me. Mm. Like, I, I was like, what is going on here? And, and let me explain why I'm so confused. Number one, I completely disagree with, uh, with Mr. Norrington there. I think that's great. Had I been a young boy... Like if I was a young kid and I'm at the mall hanging out with my friends or my parents and I see a duck get munched by a fish, dude, that would have made my year. I, I'm right there with you. If I was out in the wild and this was happening in front of my kids, I'd be like, look, kids. It's amazing. The catfish is eating those ducks. Yeah. You may never see that again in your whole life. Like Soak if it I, in. If I was Soak a kid in the and I saw that, yeah. I, I mean, that. first of all, I'd be super pumped. And second of all, I would be begging my parents to take me there every week. Yes. With or without fishing gear. Like, I would have loved it. All right, that's number one. Second, like, I couldn't figure out how this made any sense from a conservation perspective, right? The stated goal there was that they're trying to protect native birds from a, this marauding rogue catfish. Right. Right? How does relocating it solve the problem? Yep. Just You're just moving it. the fish to a different lake. Does, like, does that other lake not have birds? Do they not fly? I don't think that's true. Well, unless, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I mean, there's a lot of private water in in Great Britain. Like, yes. there's a lot of private lakes, pay lakes. Yes. You know, and that's just where different it was relocated. There's not all this pump. Yeah, my guess would be that somebody who was like really pumped about having a Wells catfish put that in a private lake. So my next quote comes from Tony Wignall, <laughs> the guy who owns the lake where the supposed problem catfish got relocated. Ah, Tony, my man. Tony told the Angler's Mail, which is a, it's, it's one of the top fishing publications in the UK. He told him, I'm sure there must be bigger cats at Lakeside, as I doubt the one removed could have been quite big enough to have taken a duck. So mm. even the guy who scored and got the free catfish out of this, he doesn't think that the fish they caught and relocated was even the fish that was involved in the maulings. Right. Like, he doesn't think it had anything to do with it. Huh. I mean, he was happy to take the fish and put it in his private lake. But, like, again, if the goal here is you're trying to protect native ducks or other wildfowl, it seems pretty clear that this isn't the solution, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head on this. And I'm trying to figure it out. And then I found a photo that I think ties the whole thing together. And the photo is of Ben Norrington and, and the other fisheries biologist who went to deal with this situation, a guy named Tom Baird. And in this other photo... They are collectively gripping and grinning with a big pike from that same day. And, and to be fair, the photo actually looks a lot like a, that one we roasted from Mike Mancini. Like, they're kind of close. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so here's what I realized. These officers were actually fishing, like, with a rod and line to 
to remove right, this right. problem catfish. And they were clearly having a really good time. And that's the moment when like, I was like, oh, I get what's going on here. So, all right, hear me out. Here's what I think happened. Some sensitive suburban parent takes their spawn out for a spring shopping trip. On their way to the mall, they stop for a quick look out across the lake and they see some ducks majestically paddling around. Just then, one of the beautiful ducks gets murdered. Said parent is incensed that they have to suffer such trauma when just trying to, you know, buy some stuff at the mall. I mean, this is a mall, not a nature documentary, right? Yeah. So they call the environment. No, yeah. <laughs> those, those you, you get little warnings on those. So they call the environmental agency to complain. And uh, a couple of fisheries officers are sitting in their cubicles and they see an opportunity. They can placate this concerned citizen and use the whole thing as an excuse to go fishing on the clock. And yes. that is at the, mall, at the mall pond. Exactly. Maybe you're not even allowed to fish. And the whole thing would have worked out, <laughs> except the media got a hold of it. Right. And a bunch of reporters showed up. And at that point, the officers, like, they had to produce a catfish to hold up for the cameras so they can claim, like, we got it. The threat has been neutralized. Everything's fine. But then, but then hold up. If they were then to kill the fish, then they'd catch hell from some animal rights group. So they had to, they right. had to find a, a private pond where they could give the fish a new home. And then they had to spin some kind of halfway plausible story to make the whole thing seem legit. That's my guess about how all this came together. Well, okay. Refresh my memory. Cause that was a long story. Did the concerned parent actually witness a catfish eating the ducks or the ducks were yes. just disappearing? No, they, they saw they, the catfish eating the ducks. Yes. Okay. So it wasn't a mistaken identity. It wasn't the giant pike in there eating the ducks. It was a catfish. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say that these people have the capacity to identify a fish by the way. It well, eats that's a duck. true. We, we've done stories about people that couldn't identify a giant sunfish, ocean sunfish in here before. <laughs> so no, but I, I asked that because, you know, you tied this to that story we had last week about the two blue cats. You said it was a 25 pound Wells. It was only a 25 pound blue cat, which right. has a much, much smaller mouth then, well, I mean, whales yeah. have massive mouths. But I looked at, I mean, I saw pictures of this fish. It would be a stretch to get a full-grown duck in there. I mean, it could, it could happen, but it'd be a stretch. Yeah. I'm surprised that the, the guy who now owns the catfish doesn't think that was probably, he's probably like, are there more in there? I'll take them all. I'll take every single one oh, of them. I mean, that's exactly what he was saying. He was like, I don't think you guys solved any problems, but if you want to give me free catfish, bring them on over. <laughs> well, I think uh, it goes without saying you have never um, in the history of this podcast given me a, an easier transition because we're going to go from invasive catfish in the UK to invasive catfish right here in the USA. Nice. How about that? Nice. Furthermore, we're going to talk flathead catfish, which are like super similar to Wells. They're like yeah. damn near our Wells catfish. So this one's, this one's kind of sort of local to me and of interest to me personally, and it's from the website of CBS Baltimore. Uh, headline, Cecil County man earns first ever Maryland state fishing record for invasive flathead catfish. And this went down right after Christmas, December 27th. Uh, angler Joshua Dixon hauled in this 57-pound, 50-inch flathead while fishing from shore on the Susquehanna River near a boat ramp just north of the city of Havre de Grace. Okay? And he says that it took him 30 minutes to reel this fish in. And he hooked it on a, the story says Zoom swim bait. And I'm just going to assume that's my all-time favorite Zoom fluke is what they're actually talking about there. It's it a very seems, powerful seems lore. seems legit. It's powerful lore. Um, but what that also tells me, regardless of the, of the bait model, is he was not using tackle meant for a 57-pound flathead, right? 
So that's impressive right there. And he, he even says in the story, for the first for the first bit of the fight, he just thought he was snagged in a tree. So I can picture like the dude, you know, it's like walking backwards with your rod behind you, just pulling uh-huh. straight, going, like, what the hell it, is going on? Yeah, exactly. Point it and pop it, trying to get unstuck. And all of, all of a sudden, this Beastmaster just goes uh, ballistic and he fights it for a half hour. But here is what's fascinating to me. As long as the Susquehanna is, right, there's really not that much of it in Maryland. And of the roughly 25 miles that are in Maryland, about half of them are below the Conowingo Dam, which is the the first of several major dams going up the Susquehanna. So where Dixon caught this fish is basically the last little bit of river before it dumps into the Chesapeake Bay. It's essentially the mouth of the river. And uh, according to this story, uh, for a flathead to qualify as a state record, it had to weigh a minimum of 40 pounds. Uh, And the Susquehanna, dude, I know, it's rife with flatheads. They're invasive, huge problem. And in fact, one of the craziest nights of fishing of my life was on the Susquehanna a few falls ago. We literally could not get four rods in the water for hours. And I don't think we caught a fish under 20 pounds. And I think we had two over 40 pounds, right? And this was... This is 50 miles upriver from where Dixon caught the fish and uh, also behind several major dams. So, you know, a 40-pounder in the river in general is not that uncommon. But I find it interesting that nobody until now has weighed in a 40-plus pounder in Maryland waters, right? And it doesn't mean they haven't been caught there. It could just mean that nobody's weighed one in there. And I, I might hear otherwise from listeners but I've not heard of the waters below that last dam, the mouth of the river being like a flathead hotspot, like stretches are upstream, you know, which it just makes you wonder, was this tank one that sort of slipped over the dam years ago and has just been sitting, in, you know, getting fat in the tidal zone? Or, or are there more of these invasives in this part of the river than people realize? And to me, it, it caught my attention because it's one of those stories that kind of tweaks the curiosity, like those old folk tales of like a giant catfish or gar bass that lives below the dam. And like somebody saw it once, Mm -hmm. you know, but nobody can ever catch it. Or you often hear that while there aren't maybe many of a particular species in tidal sections of a river, the ones that are there are really massive, which makes them even, even more mysterious and elusive. Um, We see that here. We have the Passaic in Jersey. They say there's massive pike in the tidal section. But nobody's down there targeting them. So, you know, nobody really knows. And final like final note on this, people catch loads uh, of flatheads on swim baits out here. I have friends that just like knock them dead in the Susquehanna, the Delaware, the Schuylkill, and it has never happened to me. And I want it to. You know what I'm saying? Like every time I'm hucking smallmouth lures in flathead water, I'm hoping it happens, yet it never has. And this dude throws the old Zoom in the, in the middle of the winter from shore at a boat ramp in the tide zone and smacks a 57. So good Wasn't job, he fishing bro. for like for like walleye or something? I I don't know what he was fishing for. I don't remember cuz I, I read this story. For. I thought I thought I thought I read that. I don't know if there are walleye. I've never fished there, so I don't know if they're in there. Well, I, I mean, I, no, there, there's plenty of walleye in the Susquehanna, but again, like if you look at where he is, it's I I wouldn't even think that would be a great walleye zone. We have walleye on the Delaware here, but you don't hear many people targeting them once you get down past the tide line. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the whole makeup of the river changes. No, I could be I could be totally wrong about that, but my memory of it was that he was like, Yeah, I was out walleye fishing with my with my zoom lure. Yeah. And bam. Um, yeah, but I, I, I'm shocked knowing how many fish are in there, even with not that much Susquehanna in Maryland, that there was no state record. On the books. I mean, this is not a new thing. I mean, like, there have been giant flatheads in that river for a long time now. 
So that was so, uh, when I, when I saw this story, that was the piece that I was like, oh, uh, not only is this like they didn't, this guy didn't break a record, he created a record, and that just doesn't happen anymore. And and I was like, wow, that's a really interesting angle and a cool story. But I had nothing else to say about it, so I'm glad you picked right. it up because you have a you actually know <laughs> yeah. that fishery and you actually you, you like know. have some things that you can round this out and turn into a whole story. All I had was like, well, that's cool, but <laughs> yeah, but the, the piece I kind of just did that. I'm doing the same thing. I just like you know filled it with more work. I basically just did what you did. I just think it's cool, <laughs> and I just but talked about it for too that long. I want to I want to back up on because you said like they say. That there are flatheads over here, but nobody really knows. They say they're big pike in the lower Passaic, but nobody really knows. Don't they do shocking surveys? No, not the, not of not of the Passaic. They don't. They I don't. mean, I can't I can't speak of uh, you know for for all the fisheries that would would tie into that. But you know, it's a, obviously it's a very East Coast thing. But it's true if you look at a lot of the major rivers that have tidal zones, you know, whatever their big thing is, flatheads, pike, um, you know, they, there's. X amount that would naturally make it over the dam or go hang out in the lower tidal reaches. But because now you're in water where they're, they're less easy to target because the rivers also tend to be wide there, right? Like where we're mm-hmm. talking about where he caught this on the Susquehanna. I mean, damn dude, it's almost a mile wide. You gotcha. know what I mean? Like it's, it's not a, it's not like a, like a tiny little thing coming out. So maybe in some places they do, but like, yeah, that's like a, like a thing my whole life here. Like even freshwater species that start to mingle in the brackish areas. It's like, mm-hmm. oh man, there's some big ones in there. But uh, snakeheads, same thing. I've I've heard tales of like, you want a giant snakehead, you fish the brackish water down here. But yeah, it's so wide and there's so much of it. It's like, where do you start? It's much harder in those areas often to pinpoint like, where do I even begin? So it adds like a lot of mystery if you're a tidal river guy. Man, I'm really glad you, you did cover that, and I, I thought there was going to be an answer to that. I was like, don't they don't they shock? But no, I guess that's no. I, that's no. something that happens here, but it doesn't happen everywhere. And I'm making no, an assumption they, no. about other other rivers, or it's a possibility that a million people who target flatheads in that piece of the river are just going, God damn, dude, shut, you son you. of a bitch, shut. Oh, I hate you. Yeah. So sorry if that's the case. Yeah. As you yeah, are, we're, we're making it worse. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where 
land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. All right, so the, for the second story, I'm, I'm going to talk about grailing. So you and I have swapped grailing stories in the past, mm-hmm. and and I know that we both agree that these are just they're beautiful and they're 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 interesting fish. Love for, them for anybody who's anybody who's confused right now. Grailing are a cousin of trout and salmon that live in high latitude rivers and lakes across Europe and North America. They're found in Alaska, Siberia, and parts of Canada, and they were they were once very common in the upper Missouri river system, as well as various different places in Michigan. Like those were the kind of the yep. two places in the lower 48 they used to be. And they're shaped like a trout or, or a white fish. They've got that, that same fin structure and cylindrical body, but grayling, man, they have this, this such a unique coloring. They're just, they're iridescent. Yeah. Right. They're, they're like, they're kind of like a gunmetal gray with, with a purple sheen and this sparse black spotting and kind of black, lines offsetting the whole thing but the physical attribute that really defines grayling is their massive dorsal fin it, it just it, it raises way up off their backs and it's blue and green and purple and sometimes fringed red or orange they kind of look like a cross between a mountain whitefish and a sailfish mm-hmm. if i had to yeah if i had to describe them that way um if i had to you know give give examples if you watched uh, the fur hat ice tour on on the youtubes then you, you saw cal catch one in in episode two and like I said, they used to be common in, in certain parts of lower 48, but now they're pretty much gone. Grayling haven't been in Michigan for over a century. Back in the late 1800s, grayling defined sport fishing in Michigan. Like anglers flocked to places like the upper Paramarquette just to catch grayling. And we're not talking like 20 fish days. We're talking 200 yeah. fish days. Yeah, it was loaded. And yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of to say that, that grayling sort of fit the stereotype that many of us have about models, right? They're, they're very attractive, but they're not known for a, for a dazzling intellect, shall we say. <laughs> like when I, the, the, when yeah. I was, <laughs> That's what's so great about them, though. <laughs> I know. I know, dude. And, and, and when I was guiding in Alaska, because we had tons of them up there, like if you had clients that were just, they just couldn't get it done, like they were totally inept. Mm-hmm. You'd go catch grayling, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter. You mm-hmm. could stand there just dragging a bare hook in the water, and you'd catch grayling if you're in the right spot. And that that quality of them is part of what led to their downfall in Michigan. Overharvest combined with habitat degradation from logging, and then the introduction of highly aggressive and competitive and rainbow and brown trout just wiped them out. And it, it happened fast. Yep. Like, they were everywhere, and then they were gone. 
And again, we're talking well over 100 years ago that this happened. And so people have been trying to reestablish grayling populations in Michigan since 1936 without any demonstrated success at all. Yep. Yep. Zero. And some people would argue it's time to give up. Like we gave it the old college try. And if we haven't figured it out in 80 years, it's probably not going to happen. But I am not one of those people. Uh, and, and neither are the fisheries biologists who work and, and run the hatchery in Marquette, Michigan. They think they may have found a way to reintroduce these fish that might actually work. Like in the past, biologists would, would, uh, they would just take grayling of different sizes. Like they played with different size grayling and just dump them in the rivers and hope they came back. Right. But then they wouldn't, they just disappear. And so the theory goes that grayling imprint so strongly on the places where they hatch that they will not spawn anywhere else, right? So if you raise a grayling in a hatchery, it doesn't matter to what size, and then you put it in a stream, it just won't reproduce. It can't right. figure it out. Right. Or again, not that smart because it can never get back to the place where it was hatched. So it just hmm. doesn't. I have a question about that that you may address. I, I may or may not. I may not have the answer. Are they raising them in the water from the streams they're putting them in? Here we go. So the researchers are borrowing a technique that was actually pioneered here in Montana. And I have some follow-up. We have time for that. Uh, and so what they do is they place fertilized eggs in buckets inside streams. Mm -hmm. And the buckets have holes cut in them in the up and downstream sides. So the water can flow through. And they have removable mesh to keep the eggs in and predators out. And once the eggs hatch, researchers just pull out the mesh and the tiny fish swim out in the streams, fully imprinted on their home river, and as close to wild as hatchery fish can possibly get. Now, it's going to be a few years before we know if this works because uh, they had to bring in grayling from Alaska to start the broodstock in the hatchery. And so once they have a healthy and genetically diverse broodstock, then they'll collect eggs that are, you know, that are already fertilized, and they'll plant them in wild streams and rivers and wait to see if those fish mature and, and start spawning on their own. So success, like whether or not this works, it's... It's a long way off. Sure. But if it does work, like we're talking about reestablishing a game fish that's been gone since Grover Cleveland was in office. I, I mean, what, we, you can't really harken back to good old Grover very often no, and with, with say no. like, oh, we're going to get back to those days. So I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I'm hopeful on this one. I hope this one works. I really do. I think it would be amazing. I, I, I love grayling, right? In fact, the last time I fished from a couple summers ago, um, was up in Fairbanks and, I asked the guy, and I was like, can I throw a mouse the whole time? Like, will they eat that? And he was like, yeah. Yeah. Want, and that's what I did. And they will literally, it doesn't really matter. Uh, nope. But so I, I interjected there with the water question. I have to say, man, why is it taking this long to try this technique? And look, I'm not super well-versed in the whole, but... I knew that that was a thing that happened because I feel like that technique has been happening a lot of other places in the country for like decades. That's just what you do. Like I'm pretty sure. So it's it's relatively new, and I can only speak to that because an ex girlfriend of mine, as part of her PhD work, uh, was one of the people who first used that technique out here in Montana on okay. uh, West Slope Cutthroat. And the reason that it hasn't been done is because it's incredibly incredibly hard like it, it it requires a lot of work it's one thing to just raise 
little fish in a hatchery, take them someplace and dump them and dump walk them. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this, you got to like set up these rearing stations up in, in high mountain streams or other places. You got to build them. You got to monitor them. You got to keep going back in there. Like it's a lot of work and you have to carry all that stuff depending on where you are sometimes like into the back country. So the reason why it's, it hasn't been done before I'm guessing is because it's really expensive and really hard. Yeah. Well, and th again, that's my ignorance, right? I thought that was like a common thing. I, I don't know the ins and outs, but thinking back to it, I actually think we talked here once about me catching tiny Atlantic salmon smolts in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm fairly certain they did the same thing with that program. They tried to yes. raise them in that water and yes. that, that didn't work out uh, super hot either. So, I mean, I'd like to see this work, but how much does the sporting community benefit from it? I, I feel like at this point, it's just sort of us going like, oh man, we really screwed that one up. They were always here. So we want to have them back. But, you know, then what do we do with regulation on them? Like up in Alaska, the first time I ever fished in Alaska, I caught one and I, I like treated it like gold and then found out by the end of the trip that like, no, nah, there's so many of them. You can kill like 20 a day. Like nobody, nobody cares. Like they eat them and it's, oh not yeah, they're delicious. Meat. Yeah, you, you, you can kill <laughs> the grayling. You can't. One. You can't kill the rainbows, but you can kill the grayling in the Bristol yeah. Bay area. Uh, exactly. So you know, then then what do we do with them? Like you know, do you think that they'll they'll be like a, a draw for that, or is this just more to 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 reestablish what was? I think it's more of, of the latter. Um, I think your question about like does this benefit the sporting community? You're, you're asking if the, the even the fishing community is is a monolith and in agreement and the answer to that is no right we, we aren't some people are like screw it i prefer brown trout and steelhead i don't care if they're native put all your money into them right and and are those people wrong i'm not gonna say they're wrong but those fish didn't used to be there and, i mean and at some what of these trees have salmon like, and browns going. too right right exactly like i and i'm not gonna i'm not trying to wade into that particular argument like well are we trying to go back to something that doesn't exist? I'm merely saying for me, I think this is a, a, an iconic and interesting fish. I hope this works. And unless they have another really good idea, maybe this should, maybe we move on after this. I don't know, but <laughs> I can say that this technique has worked with, uh, with West Slope cutthroat here in Montana. So yeah. for whatever that's yeah. worth. Yeah. And, and we'll move on from it. But I mean, that's the other thing too. A, a lot of these rivers that they're talking about in Michigan in particular, when those grayling were thriving, didn't have Pacific salmon and steelhead running up them either. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you also have to factor in that those rivers ain't what they were in, in old Grover's. They're not. <laughs> old Grover's day. <laughs> uh, I have not much of a transition other than I, I took a note here that you, you referred to them as gunmetal gray, which kind of transitions in a weird way, into this quirky one from the website of LiveScience.com. Uh, the headline sucked me right in, and it is, eight times nature was totally metal in 2020. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> nature is metal has become part of, like, the cultural conversation. Yeah. An Instagram account has changed. The way anyway, go ahead. <laughs> and the funniest thing to me about this is that this, this list actually, in a way, reflects just how shitty 2020 was because – there are some really cool things in here that I don't recall hearing a peep about, probably because there was a lot more other sucky, less cool shit like clogging up the news all year. Um, but just to rattle off a few, there was a dazzling show of lightning shooting out of a volcano in the Philippines, a species of, of cannibalistic dinosaur uh, uncovered, and the discovery of a fossil depicting a squid and a fish locked in a death match. 
right? How, I saw that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the one that grabbed me, uh, which I have no recollection of whatsoever, uh, was slugged in the story, An Eel Goes Alien. And we suck at our jobs because this, this happened in Delaware just this past November. And I don't remember seeing this at all. An amateur photographer captured this series of photos of a great blue heron with what they originally thought was a, quote, snake eel, which isn't a real thing, and they figure that out later too. But they thought it was a snake eel biting and latched onto the bird's upper chest slash lower neck region. Uh, and apparently this heron was flying and walking around completely unbothered by a pretty damn big eel dangling from its chest. Well, upon further study, it turned out to be an American eel, duck, because mm -hmm. there's no such thing yeah. as a snake eel, that right. had burst through the chest cavity of the bird. In other words- That's what it looked like in the photo to me. Okay. Because the it head was, a, was down. Right, right. So they originally thought the head was grabbing the chest. It was attached by the tail. The head end was hanging down, uh, and it was stuck. And it looks exactly like a chest burster from the Aliens totally movie, movie franchise, right? Uh, and it, it seems the eel was dead. And again, the bird was unfazed. There's a bunch of shots of this. And no one is sure what happened to the bird, but I'd love to know the scenario. Because American eels, they don't exactly have teeth like a moray, but they do have teeth and they are very wily. So I wonder, like, did this heron grab the eel head first? And did it like literally nibble a hole in its torso while being swallowed? Or did it exploit a small hole the bird already had from another injury? Um, this is actually a pretty big food item for a heron. It's a, I mean, it's a yeah. big eel. It's, it's yeah. not tiny. Uh, but regardless, it's it's freaking disturbing. Like the shots are really <laughs> disturbing. Um, so I'll throw a shot of that in today's uh, Insta story. But um, that's really it. That's all I got. I just I don't know how we missed that one, and it's it's probably one of the most disturbing nature images I've ever seen. Yeah, that the, the, that shot is crazy, and I don't know how we missed either. We we do suck at our jobs, um, <laughs> particularly since you know I I did a bunch of coverage on American Eels both on yeah. this show and on the website. And yeah. I love those things in the sense that I think they're just really interesting, although creepy and alien looking. So check that one out. And if anybody has the answer or figures out the answer to what did happen there, I really want to know. Yeah, we have Christmas tree people who chime in, right? Yeah. We, I mean, we got to have some bird people, you know what I, I mean? I hope so. But how the, the, the heron is so unfazed as it seems to be, and it's flying around, it's got a giant eel hanging out of its neck. Yeah. So... Phil, giant eels hanging out of necks. Okay, uh, what, what? What? More what fish eating ducks, what, scaring what, children. Why? Why when we come to the end of this, even or though we just did fish, it? I, excuse me, I, duck I, eating fish. More, more duck eating fish. That's right. Record catfish. We always come to the end of news, and even though we've just done all <laughs> this, like, I like say? have a hard time recalling what the hell we just talked about. Uh, Phil, you were probably listening though, uh, so we'll hear what Phil has to say, and then move on to another epic smooth moves. Miles Nolte, like the Nick variety. Wow, I got it. Um, Miles, considering you say your own name at the top of every podcast, and I have heard every podcast, this is the epitome of embarrassment. You're one of my favorite Caligus, so I just want to say from the bottom of my heart that I apologize. And guess what? You're the winner! <laughs> Now, if you're asking yourself if you really earned this or if it's just my way of saying sorry, uh, don't worry about it. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. Welcome back to Smooth Moves. It's the part of the show where we call up guides and outfitters and charter captains and, you know, 
people who make their living and earn their beer money taking other people fishing, and we get them to tell us some kind of ridiculous story about something the clients have done. Today, we have my good friend Hillary Hutchison, who I don't get to see very often, uh, except in these weird little fake Zoom-like <laughs> spaces, but, uh, but uh, one of these days, again, we will go fishing. Hillary, how's it going? It's going great. Yep. I can't wait for that time. I would love to have you on the boat soon. Oh man. How's your, how's your guide season? It was weird. It was super yeah. weird. It was great. Um, yeah, it was weird because in the beginning it was so bizarre. Like there were, I think one day I had 23 cancellations in one day, um, in like April for June. So basically all of June oh. was just canceled. Oh, man. Yeah. Ouch. Because yeah. yeah, I'm up here at Glacier National Park and they had announced that the park wasn't going to open at the time they thought it was going to open. So yeah, 23 cancellations in one day and just like freaking out. But then suddenly everybody rediscovered the outdoors, I guess. And suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, they yeah. sure yeah. have. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it like all filled like within the next day. So it was like, Super high, high and low, low and like super weird. So then from then on, it's been every single day, all of June, um, July, August, September, October has been busier than ever. So super strange and just weird COVID stuff all summer long, you know, so. I mean, that sounds like the perfect storm of, of different factors coming together to set you up for some strange occurrences, which is why you're here to yeah. tell us about <laughs> one of those strange occurrences. So let it lay it on us. What do you got for the for the smooth move? I don't know how long this trend, I mean, this trend's been going on forever and ever and ever, but it's a growing trend of having like these um, corporate execs get sent out to go fly fishing to somehow relieve a bunch of stress. Like their board was like, you are on the verge of killing people. We have to like send you to Montana to go fly fishing. And they, they see fly fishing as like something that's going to chill them out or something that's going to you know, make them calm. I think they think of it as like some serene, peaceful kind of thing. Well, as everybody knows, like if you've never done this before and you're from like Manhattan and haven't been like out West at all, you're getting thrown to the wolves. This has been happening, you know, a fair amount, a lot where we get these people who are highly stressed and I get this woman and she is the most amazing, remarkable woman of all time. I mean, she is fabulous. She is like was a National Merit Scholar, Rhodes Scholar from the University of Oxford. She's like a Wall Street exec. She's a multimillionaire. She is like the consummate vanquisher. She is the ruler of all Wall Street. <laughs> she's just this fantastic. And I am in awe. She's like only 28 years old. She's super fit. She's gorgeous. The most beautiful woman I have ever seen. And she's got this like aura of just like ruling the world and also very nice. She was very cool. She brought like this super high-end bourbon for me. And she's like, you know, at one point mm. she smoked a cigar and she was rad. Like she was <laughs> the coolest, smartest, millionaire, most fantastic person ever. And she was witty, funny. She caught on to fishing. She fished her ass off. She was fantastic in every way. And it was super weird because she's feeding me like, you know, this bourbon and she's like drinking cappuccino and she's like, and I'm drinking water and I'm like, I got to pee. So I kept having to pull over, say, do you need a potty break? She's like, no, I'm good. So I'd go off into the woods, go pee, come back. We go down the river. She's fishing. She's amazing. I'm in awe. And there's like light shining all around her. And I'd be like, I got to pee. And I'd pull over, get off the side of the boat, go pee. Do you have to pee? Nope. She doesn't have to pee. And the whole time I'm like, God, she doesn't even have to pee. She's drinking bourbon. She's drinking coffee. She's drinking water. She doesn't pee all day long. No pee from this woman. She's not peeing at all. 
And I'm like, amazing. So she must have been so dehydrated. Her body is absorbing all of the liquids as I'm getting off the boat every five minutes. So then end of the trip and we get to the takeout and there's porta potty at the takeout. She finally gets off the boat, goes to the porta potty. And I was like, oh, she really held it all day long after drinking this whiskey, after drinking all this water, coffee, everything. I'm like super impressed. She's in there for two seconds. She comes back with a plastic grocery sack, hands it to me, asks me to throw it away. No big deal. We get to the company and she gets in her fancy car. She gave me a giant tip. We exchanged information. She, I was just like, oh my gosh, I love you. You're the best person ever. And then I go to clean up my trip and I'm taking out the trash and I see this like garbage bag she had given me to throw away. And I don't know why I can't just look the other way, but I had to look in the bag. Depends. Adult diaper all day oh, long. No way. <laughs> wow the fullest of full depends and this girl she's like (laughs) my idol in every way she was just the coolest chick ever and all day long she was pissing her pants (laughs) all day long and here I I am this total (laughs) sucker like she had me she was and I think I don't know if like there's like a blog went out in like Manhattan outdoors or something like that. There was this hack, like go out West, pee your pants, you know? Um, it, but I've heard of this exact story, almost exactly the same where like some corporate exec comes out and they ha- don't want to pee in the woods and that's their hack. They're using adult diapers. And this is not to say that it is a bad thing to use, depends, uh, you know, lots of people wear them. Mm-hmm. This was just so unexpected from this particular demographic <laughs> that yeah. it blew my mind, blew my mind. She doesn't have an incontinence problem. This was a, a choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you think this was almost like a hack, like there was a memo, yes. like for city folk going yes. out there, like if you don't want to lower yourself to urinating in the woods. Yes. Yeah. Throw on some depends. That's right. Or if they're afraid of, you know, bears or like, how do you even do it? What, what do you do? Like if, if that's just like, you know, a big mystery and something they don't want to have to deal with, you know, I mean, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, well, God, if I have to go to Manhattan and go on the subway, maybe I'll just wear depends. Like, <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I would rather, I would rather wear depends having worked in Manhattan for many years. I would much rather right? uh, wear depends than, than use the restrooms at say Penn station. That's what I'm talking about. I've been about. in there and I've seen some things. That's what I'm things talking about. Things you don't, about. you can't unsee. Yeah, exactly. So. And she's probably not <laughs> expecting that I would look in there. And I mean, this, this diaper was heavy, heavy. <laughs> and I'm, I don't, I mean, it, because I really like this person, I'm not sure if it was number one or number two, but it made me think, it made me think throughout the day. I'm like, maybe when I thought she was laughing at my jokes, she was actually just taking a giant dump. I feel like if we were going to turn that into an instructional, it would have to be titled, How to Soil Yourself with Class and Dignity. Thanks, oops, I crap my pants. <laughs> Uh, I love our low humor. Uh, speaking of class and dignity, trying to salvage this one. Right. Joe's going to gonna close the gap here for us, uh, bringing the show full circle back to those trout magnets. And, uh, and this one is, is by request. Do I have that right? Yes, it is. This is our first end of the line by listener request. And, and what prompted um, the dirtbag comment was a bunch of social media posts from earlier this winter of trout 
right? That I was catching on trout magnets, which I love. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had an outpouring of requests for a trout magnet and the line segment. And it seems many people are in the know on this lore. Many others are magnet curious or have not harnessed their full power, such as Miles here. So yep. uh, listen up because I'm about to school you on why the trout magnet could be the glue Okay, that locks together the hands of fly and conventional trout bums as they sing Heal the World. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The Trout Magnet is the brainchild of Jeff Smith and Todd Garner, two buds from West Virginia that started tinkering with bait making in Jeff's garage in the 1990s, eventually forming the company Leland's Lures. Now, during that tinkering, a pivotal piece of kit emerged, a plastic mold designed to make cake decorations. It was Smith who figured out that he could also use this mold with soft plastic. And what he ended up creating was the earliest version of the trout magnet, which he'd spend the next few years refining into what many consider the most potent, versatile trout lure ever made. Now, it was unleashed upon the masses in 1997, thanks to a fateful encounter with a Walmart big shot that Jeff took fishing and who subsequently got to witness the power of the magnet firsthand. So what is this mythical trout magnet? In simplest terms, it's a soft plastic mealworm. The body is segmented, slightly tapered. It features a split tail and measures just a hair over an inch. By the way, they're not scented, okay? This is not power bait. This little fake mealworm, however, is pretty worthless without its unique head. Trout magnets come with itty-bitty 164th ounce jig heads that East Coasters might recognize as tiny baby shad darts. The head is conical, but sliced off diagonally at the front to create a sloping face. When the head and body harmonize, Smith and Garner's genius reveals itself. Unlike other jigs, say a curly tail grub or a hair jig that will always fall nose down, a trout magnet falls horizontally, or flat, as fishing people like to say. When paired with a tiny float, it also hangs perfectly horizontally below it, showing off its full profile at all times. Now finally, that sloped jig head face naturally deflects water, which makes a trout magnet most effective when you do nothing at all with it. Whenever I post a shot of a mag in a trout's face, people ask me, how you working that thing, man? And the answer is, I'm not. Now, I've had great success casting a trout magnet by itself on an ultralight rod and twitching it back. That works very well, but that's not really how these lures were designed to be fished. Your job is just to create a drag-free drift letting your little trout magnet float slip down a seam or through a pool without dragging. The current does the rest, pushing on that shad dart head, making the lure twitch, quiver, and flash ever so slightly as it rides down the lane. And there is nary a trout, or Great Lake steelhead, by the way, that can resist when the presentation is right. So if you just said to yourself, oh, it's just nymphing with a spinning rod, you'd be correct which is why my blood boils when I get looks of shame from fly guys, or worse, Euronymphers, okay? I got many of these looks just a few weeks ago on what is arguably New Jersey's most famed piece of trout conservation water. Euronymphing is trout magnet fishing without a spinning rod, okay? I mean, our strike indicators were the same size, 
And both of our reels were spooled with straight mono, as far as I'm concerned. Yet I was still the asshole somehow, not worthy of a nod or a hello as we crossed paths on the river trail. But you know what? That's okay. Because there was a time in my life when I was that guy too. And then I got over myself and realized I didn't really care how I was catching trout anymore as long as I was catching them. Even if that meant putting a trout magnet on a fly rod, which to me, frankly, isn't dirty because it weighs as much as a big stonefly nymph and is made from pretty much the same material as a squirmy wormy, which most people seem to accept as flies. Luckily, though, trout magnets are available in a huge amount of colors, many of which match natural aquatic forage. I mean, hell, you can even opt for a matte black jig head so you don't run the risk of being called a cheater by incorporating flash. Now, if I'm being totally honest these days, if I'm forced into a situation where nymphing is the smartest or only game in town, particularly in the winter around here in the Northeast, I just assume fish a trout magnet on a spinning rod. And if I'm fishing a trout magnet on a spinning rod, it's usually classic mealworm gold. Stocker rainbows crush hot pink. Peach and red are good too, but them wild buttery browns love that gold, baby. Final note, trout magnets are also dirt cheap. For 10 bucks, you can score yourself a 100-piece kit, including seven of the most productive body colors and a selection of those shad dart jig heads in all the colors available. 10 bucks roughly buys five nymphs, give or take, just saying. The kit comes in a sleek little box that takes up very little room in your Flambeau Ike 400 tackle bag, or it can be easily and discreetly concealed in a Sims Freestone ambidextrous fishing sling pack. Well, that just about concludes our peace, harmony, and togetherness episode. If you're now thinking about shaving your head, wearing flowing robes, and handing out inspirational pamphlets at the airport, make sure to include the following points. Mike Iconelli loves zebra mussels. Yes. Tom Rosenbauer is secretly judging your stupid questions. Trout <laughs> magnets work exactly as advertised and Hillary Hutchinson's idol, pees her pants. If peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles Davis. Thanks for spending some time with us. As always, keep sending those bar nominations, Salbin items, awkward photos, all the other things we ask you for to bent at com. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you hate. Tell us what we got wrong, because that happens sometimes. And just, you know, how you doing? Yeah, we appreciate each and every one of you degenerates, so long as you're not the person leaving empty worm containers on the bank of my favorite trout hole, because f*** that guy. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana. 
They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.